You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. He called it the great sin. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free. Which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others. And of which hardly any people except some Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The sin that C.S. Lewis is referring to here, the great sin, is the sin of pride. And Lewis's appraisal of pride as the great sin lines up with what God says in His Word about pride. For example, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and following, the writer of Proverbs mentions seven things which God hates. Now, whenever you see a list that consists of things that God hates, you you probably want to pay attention to that list. And the first item mentioned on that list is this. God hates haughty eyes. King James translates it like this. A proud look. God detests pride. Over in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, the Bible says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. 1 Peter 5, 5. The Apostle Peter admonishes the Christians he's writing to in Asia Minor and us today. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For God, listen opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about that. God sets Himself in opposition against pride. You might even say it like this. God goes to war against pride. And we see this illustrated clearly in our passage this morning. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. We are continuing our study through this wonderful book of God's Word. We made it to Daniel chapter 4. Turn there with me. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. When you found your place, I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. What a service thus far. I love celebrating our graduates and the 
singing, the congregational singing, the special music. Wow. And I'm thinking, just don't mess this up, Wade, okay? Just things are going so well. Just don't, just don't mess this up. But look there with me in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. This is Nebuchadnezzar saying this. Look what it says next. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. And you might ask the question, well, why would Nebuchadnezzar write that? Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, the, the, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. This is sort of a repeat of chapter 2, the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar needed interpreted. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions in my, of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Let's pray together. Father, we pause in this moment to recognize our need for you. We really believe, we really believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Spirit of God, would you move among us with power that we would understand your word, that we would respond to your word, 
that we would leave this place different than when we walked in today. God, would you help us do that? May the finished work of Christ be lifted up in our midst, that we might see Jesus more clearly. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Chapter 4 is interesting because it is basically a first-person document that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, writes, and he wants it distributed around his kingdom. He wants the people that he is leading to know some things concerning what had recently happened to him. So he writes this document. That's why it says there uh, in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples. He addresses who it is and who he is writing to. And in this, this explanation that Nebuchadnezzar gives in this document, he's sharing that he had had another troubling dream. And instead of a great statue like the, the dream of chapter 2, here in chapter 4 he has a dream about a great tree, a beautiful tree that has large leafy branches. Birds want to come and nest in those branches. But then in the dream with the beautiful tree, the tree is cut down and a stump remains. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, what in the world does this mean? So he approaches his his astrologers, his enchanters, the, the pagan wise men of the day, and they had no answer. They could not tell him what the dream was or what the dream meant. And so he remembers there was one on that wise council named Daniel who was able to tell me my dream last time I had one like this and interpret it for me. So Daniel comes back on the scene. In fact, look what it says there in verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, that's the Babylonian name given to Daniel, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then the first person ends, and starting there in verse 19, and going down through verse 27, we see the interpretation of the dream that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And then at the end of the chapter, first person picks back up as Nebuchadnezzar closes down this document that he wants to distribute among his kingdom. And here's the basic premise of the dream. Hey, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the tree represents you. It represents the greatness of your kingdom. But there's coming a time that the tree will be cut down. You will be removed from your reign. This won't be final for you because there's still a stump remaining, but the tree will be cut down. And this pictures you, Nebuchadnezzar, being removed from your role as a king and being driven into the wilderness to live like a beast, to live like an animal. You're going to lose your sanity. You're going to act like cattle. As you live in the wilderness, and it says for a period of, of seven, uh, or uh, uh, it says for seven periods, which probably means seven years, you will be removed from your kingdom and you will be insane. That's disconcerting news. That's the interpretation that Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar in this text. So, what does Nebuchadnezzar do with that information? Does he fall on his face and say, Oh God! I don't want you to judge me like this. I don't want you to cut down my tree. 
I want you to bless me. I want to turn to you and humble myself before you. Is that what Nebuchadnezzar does? No, look what happens in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, one year later, after he had shared this dream with Daniel, and Daniel had interpreted, one year later, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Does the scary, terrifying dream humble Nebuchadnezzar? No. A year later, he is walking around proud of himself. Proud of his achievements. Proud of his accomplishments. And that's when the the dream comes to fulfillment. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this, this passage of how God deals Nebuchadnezzar quickly. And I want to point out just three things about how God deals with pride. First of all, in the text, we see pride exemplified. Pride exemplified. This this story is an illustration of what pride looks like. We just read it. Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He had three royal palaces in Babylon, by the way. And he's looking around at the, the surrounding city, its greatness... Babylon was a sight to behold. All the way around the city there was a giant moat filled with water. It was surrounded by double walls for protection. And the walls were so wide, chariots could could run back and forth on the top of those walls. At one point, the, the walls connected to the Ishtar Gate, about 40 feet high, which indicates the walls were probably about that high as well. So he's looking at the, the city. He's looking at the, the fortifications, the towers that are placed all around the walls, the chariots going back and forth, the, the Ishtar Gate, which opened up to the Grand Promenade. And, and probably he looked over at the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had these gardens built as a gift to his wife. And history records the Hanging Gardens of Babylon as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This city was something to behold. And Nebuchadnezzar's walking around and saying, Look what I've done. I am great. And this city reflects my greatness. So what we see here is we see what pride really is. So look at Nebuchadnezzar's example. Let me give you just some thoughts about what pride is. First of all, pride is taking credit. Pride is taking credit. Look what it says there in verse 30. Is not this great Babylon which I have built? Is not this great Babylon which I have have built. It's interesting that archaeologists have found many of the stones that were used for building the the buildings in Babylon, and many of those stones had the name Nebuchadnezzar stamped on them. He wanted his name all over the city. He wanted the credit for how beautiful and grand this city was. And he looks around and says, look at what I have done. He's taking credit for how grand and great and beautiful the city 
is. And that's what pride is. It's taking credit. It's a, listen, a failure to recognize that you could not have achieved what you have achieved apart from God. That's what pride is. It's thinking that you can do the things you're doing and have done the things you've done without God's help. And that's where a lot of people live their lives. Pride in accomplishments. But let me read to you what Paul says about this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. The church in Corinth was filled with pride. They were proud of their spiritual gifts. They were proud of their leaders. And they would pit one leader against another because they thought their leader was better than the other leader. And there was division and dissension. And the church at Corinth was a mess. And the number one issue was pride. And listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, picture of pride, puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? Look what he says, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, he's saying, you're, pride, you're, you're, you're prideful about your, your gifts, your accomplishments, your wisdom, your leaders. Listen to me. Everything you have comes from God. What do you have that you did not receive? And I can even anticipate preaching a sermon like this. There might be some listening that would say, Well, listen, uh, Pastor Wade, there's some things I've done in my life. I mean, there, there, there's been some things I've accomplished. There's some things I've gotten done. I've worked harder than other people. I've applied myself in greater ways than other people have. I've taken responsibility, and I've done some great things in my life. What's wrong with that, Pastor Wade? Only this. Who allowed your heart to beat while you were doing those great things? Who kept your lungs breathing when you were doing those great things? Who gave you a mind to be able to figure some things out in this life. Who, who woke you up in the morning as you pursued your accomplishments? The answer, of course, is God. We have no wisdom but the wisdom that comes from God. We have no strength but the strength that comes from God. We have no life but the life that comes from God. So anything that happens good in our lives is a reflection of God's grace working in our lives. And we dare not take credit for that. Now let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we should not pursue worthy accomplishments. We should not, I'm not saying that we should not work hard. We should not try to accomplish some things. I'm not saying we should not seek excellence. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, whatever your hands, hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Colossians 3 says, when you work, work heartily unto the Lord. I mean, put your all into it. Pursue excellence. Try to accomplish some things. But remember, you can go nowhere or do nothing apart from God's grace working in your life. So when you look at an achievement, you won't be able to say, Look what I have done. You'll look and say, oh God, you've been so good to me. Pride is taking credit. Thinking you accomplished it all in and of yourself. Pride is receiving praise. Look what it says there in verse 30. 
Is not this the great Babylon which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory, the glory. He wants glory here, the glory. I want the name of Nebuchadnezzar to be great. I'm seeking praise. And pride is this desire to be praised when it's God who ought to be praised. Pride is thinking you're the point of it all. In verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar says, I am making a big deal about me. It's all about me. Look at me. My names are on the bricks. I commissioned and led the building of the hanging garden. Look at me. It's all about me. I'm the point of it all. But pride is saying, or humility says, I'm not the point of it all. I'm leveraging the life God has given me for the glory of his great name. Jesus is the point of it all. Now let me tell you just very quickly why pride is so dangerous. Why God is opposed to pride. Why he sets himself in opposition to pride. Why he is at war with pride. First, it keeps people from salvation. A lot of folks never meet Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior because of pride. you know that? Pride sends multitudes to hell. Multitudes. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us. It speaks of his finished work. Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven, took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect matchless life, went to the cross as our substitutionary atonement, died for our sins, took the wrath of God that we deserve. He died on the cross, was taken off the cross, buried, and early on the third day he rose from the grave. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He's done everything necessary to save you. He's gone to great lengths to save you because of his love for you. But so many people... People hear that and say, eh, don't need it. Don't need Jesus. I'm doing okay. I'm a good old guy or good old gal. I'm doing okay. I'm basically a good person. And I hear what you're saying, preacher, but I don't need Jesus. I don't need to bow my knee and heart before him. I'm doing pretty good without him. And God is opposed to pride because pride keeps so many people from embracing the grace of God in Christ. It keeps people from salvation. It also leads to self-sufficiency. This is true in the non-Christian. This is true in the Christian. When pride begins to rear its ugly head in our lives, we find ourselves thinking that we can accomplish something without God's help. We don't really need God. Life's going pretty good without Him. And so it leads to a place of self-sufficiency, which is so very dangerous. And pride is dangerous to our souls because it decreases gratitude. Again, we look around at our accomplishments, our achievements, things that are good, and we think, look what I've done. Instead of saying, thank you, God, for your grace. Pride is dangerous to our souls. So pride is illustrated or exemplified in this text. But secondly, pride is humbled. Look what it says in verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth... There fell a voice from heaven. 
O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall never, or you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall make, be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Wow. Immediately, in this moment of pride, immediately God humbles him. He lost two things. He lost his authority as king, driven out to the wilderness. Other people had to, to reign. There's some historical scholarly discussion over who that was that reigned in his place. But someone had to reign in his place. He lost his authority and he lost his sanity. And he lost his dignity. He's, he's out in the wilderness now eating grass like a cow. His nails are growing long. His hair is growing long. He is insane. Seven years, seven years he lived like an animal. Which leads me to this reality. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. And to be humbled is painful. Unchecked pride leads to painful humiliation. That's what we see here in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Old Testament scholar Stephen Miller writes this, The king had learned a painful lesson. God hates pride and humbles those who will not acknowledge his sovereignty over them. Persons who walk in pride today discover that this cause and effect spiritual law continues to operate. In other words, we experience in some way, shape, or form what Nebuchadnezzar experienced. When we get prideful, God has a way of humbling us, doesn't he? And the humbling is not pleasant. The humbling is no fun. It hurts. But God, listen to me, as a reflection of his grace allows or causes that humbling because he's opposed to the pride in your life. He knows what unchecked pride will lead to in your life. He knows what unchecked pride will do to you. And so he, as a God of grace, sets himself against it. And often it's painful humbling that comes to get our attention. Pride humbled, but third and last... We see God's purpose. We see God's purpose. God deals with our pride because it robs God of the ultimate glory that he alone deserves. Look what happens in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High. I blessed the Most High. And praised him and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting Dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does nothing, or he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? This proud king is humbled. And all of a sudden, he begins to ascribe to the one true God the worth that is due his name. This, this pagan king is talking about how powerful the one true God is. In fact, look what it says in verse 36. 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Hey, listen, I got my kingdom back. But I realized that I'm just another king that, that lives under the king of heaven. I have a kingdom, but God's kingdom is the kingdom because it has everlasting dominion, verse 34. I am powerful, but God is unstoppable in his, in his power and purpose. He says there, who can stay his hand? None can stay his hand. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar begins to give God ultimate glory. As he rules and reigns over the universe. And that's why God deals with our pride. So that we will will give him the ultimate glory that he alone deserves. God deals with our pride so he gets glory. We lay down our self-sufficiency. But there's another reason that God deals with pride. He cares for us. Look what it says back in verse 2. This was striking to me. Chapter 4, verse 2. I I read this and it kind of jumped off the page. Nebuchadnezzar says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. The whole unfolding story in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, It was for me. God did that for me. I needed to be humbled and God did it for me. It's amazing how this great Babylonian king recognizes God's personal touch in his life. Now there's, again, scholarly discussion about whether or not Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in the one true God and and followed him the rest of his days, whether he was saved or not because of his faith in in the the one true God. There's, There's question on that. But we do know this. Nebuchadnezzar came to a place where he believed that God dealt with people individually. And he came to a place where he realized the one true, all-powerful God cared for him. Listen, have you come to that place in your life? That you realize and understand the one true God of heaven cares for you. He knows you by name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what you've experienced in the past. He knows what you're going through today. He cares about you. And because He cares about you, He will will get your attention and deal with your pride so you can see your need for Him. Sometimes the hard things that happen are for the best. Because God uses those hard things to break down the pride in our lives so that we see, oh, I need Jesus. I need a Savior. I need Him every hour. I I need the Lord. Maybe you're going through something hard right now. Going through something very difficult right now. Could I ask you to consider 
that that hard thing might be God's grace in your life? Because God's trying to get your attention? Maybe you haven't had ears to hear what the Lord has been saying to you. And God's allowing this trial, this tribulation, this this pressure to bring you to a place where you say, Help! I need you, God. God deals with our pride because He cares for us. And a removal of our pride makes way for God's mercy. I'm so glad, as I look back over my own life, I'm so glad those moments when pride has taken control of my heart and my mind and my soul, that God didn't just leave way to keep on keeping on. God allowed hard times or hard things or humbling things to get my attention. That's His mercy. That's His mercy. Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to tell you about all the great things that God Most High has done for me. So in this text, we see pride exemplified in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, just look at me real quick. Here's the takeaway. We all got a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in us. Amen? Amen? And then pride is humbled. God comes against that pride. He's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then his purpose is is made clear here. That he's the one that gets the glory. He's the only one that deserves worship and praise. And his humbling makes way for his mercy. He deals with our pride because he cares for us. One quick story and we'll close. When I was in college, My priorities were wrong. I was a, a believer in Jesus. I was a Christian. I was saved when I was nine years of age. But I was in college, and my priorities had shifted. They were on sports, and this, this beautiful girl named Claire, who's now my wife, and both good things, but they were higher on my priority list than Jesus. You know that can happen, right? You can put good things in a place of prominence above Jesus. And... My priorities had shifted. And just shortening the story very quick, God took me through a period of, of humbling. Humbling. I call it brokenness. He got my attention. And I found myself in a place of misery and like, what is going on? And I talked to my pastor, Chris Adams, who, by the way, will preach for us next week. He's a naval chaplain now. And he was the mentor that walked me through that time and walked me through my call to ministry. And I can't wait for you to meet Chris. And his wife, Christy. But Chris took me to a verse in Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things you worry about will be added unto you. God will take care of you if you seek Jesus and his kingdom first. And here's what he said to me. I was talking about me and Claire and you know, all, that, all that was going on with that. And he said, Wade, it sounds like to me you're seeking first the kingdom of Wade and Claire and not the kingdom of God. And it gripped my heart. I got him a little Toyota truck, drove four hours from my hometown back to my college dorm. And I walked in 
my little dorm room, had a room by myself, and, and for the first time, months, maybe years, I opened my Bible and got on my knees. And there in that dorm room, I said, Jesus, you're first. It's been all about me. It's been all about me. And I want you to be Lord of my life. You're first. And I got up off my knees. Listen to this. And almost immediately, I began to sense a call to preach the gospel. My dad wasn't a preacher. My grandfather wasn't a preacher. That wasn't even on my radar screen. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking about seminary and preaching and teaching and what that would look like in the local church and pastoring. And, and, and it, it just came out of nowhere. But here's what I believe. I believe that I was so full of Wade that I didn't have ears to hear God. And when God humbled me and dealt with that, and I laid it down, almost immediately I began to sense God's call on my life. And as long as we're walking around like Nebuchadnezzar, look at all the great things I've done. Look how wonderful I am. Look at what I've achieved. I don't believe we'll hear God. Because we're too full of self. Aren't you glad God won't leave you there? He cares about you. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.